good afternoon. Uh, some of you may know uh, that Joanne and I were away. Uh, we came back two weeks ago. We were away for three and a half weeks. And uh, we sure did miss meeting weekly to worship God with you all. Uh, we, we really missed it. And, and though it's always hard to say goodbye to family, we spent time with family in the United States. As all of you all know, you've experienced that, of course. Uh, it's good. It's so good to be back together again with the people that we've covenanted together with to uh, watch over one another's lives, to carry out God's work together in this place, in Dubai, in the United Arab Emirates, which is a really strategic and desperately needy place. It's needy for the gospel. And I'm confident that God brought you here to this place, if you know Jesus, in order to share the gospel in this place. I'm confident of that. And I hope you are growing increasingly confident of that too. I want to read to you a quote. See if you can think of who might have spoken this quote. It's a quote spoken by a brilliant scholar, I'll give you a clue, who taught at Oxford University. Faith in God is the great cop-out, the great excuse to avoid the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith in God is the belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. Well, those are the words of one of the most well-known atheists of our time, Richard Dawkins. He's sold millions of books, which all have as their foundation a firm, even aggressive belief that there is no God. There is no God, he says. He argues that religion is based entirely on falsehoods, and it's not only useless, but it's actually dangerous. That's what he thinks about all religion, actually, not just Christianity. How many of you all know someone who considers themselves an atheist? Raise your hand if you know someone who considers themselves an atheist. Okay, that's pretty amazing actually, come to think of it, considering the fact that we live in actually a very religious place. We live in a very religious place compared to many other places in the world. Of course, you don't have to self-identify yourself as an atheist in order to be an atheist. There are many people who simply wish that there were no God, no one to hold them accountable. And if they can't be sure that there's a God, they'd just rather continue imagining that there is none. There's another kind of atheist that's really maybe what we'd call a practical atheist. That's someone who simply lives as if there isn't any God. They give him no consideration in any of the choices in their life. A third kind of atheist is those who admit that God exists, but they deny that he has any control or power over anything. They think to themselves something like this. How can it be wise or do any good to admit that there's a God who doesn't do anything? He doesn't see anything. He cares about nothing, punishes no one, rewards no one, and has never been even proven to exist. What effect does it have on a person's life if they disbelieve in God? You know, it's interesting to consider 
what atheists say about the possibility of a god or the impossibility of there being a god. Where do we find out what God thinks about atheists? We actually find that in the Bible, God's word. And that's what we're going to learn more about this afternoon. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Psalm 14, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 14. That's what we're studying this afternoon. Follow along with me, if you would. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are utterly lost without hearing from you. Not hearing from you, not knowing your will and your ways, is like experiencing a famine, like a people who would starve to death. But we have your word. Set the table for us, Lord. Help us feast on your word today. Amen. Well, the main idea of Psalm 14 is this. No one is good, but God saves his people. No one is good, but God saves his people. No one is good, but God saves his people is the main idea. And the outline this afternoon is going to be three points. Recognize your sinfulness, verses 1 through 4. Recognize your sinfulness. Trust God's protection. That's verses 5 through 6. Trust God's protection. And hope in God's salvation. Hope in God's salvation. That's verse 7. Joanne and I arrived back uh, two weeks ago on Friday. And uh, on that day... We got to enjoy Frank Sampson's sermon in Psalm 23. And then last week, I really enjoyed John Pentecost's in Psalm 79. And it made me excited to help us understand and hear God speaking to us his truth through Psalm 14. And Psalm 14 puts us back into the first book of the Psalms. If you'll remember, the Psalms are broken up into five books so there's various psalms in each of those books. Turn with me for just a moment in your bulletin to page 14. I don't know if you've noticed this, but on page 14, on page 14, there's a bit of a description about reading the psalms. And you'll see uh, brief descriptions there 
that give us the theme for what is in book one. If you took all those psalms, Psalms 1 through 41, and you kind of looked at all of them and considered what's the theme, it's David and his enthronement as the king of Israel. And so as we go through the psalms, it's important to think about what book each of the psalms is in as we exposit it and explore it. I hope you take some of the time to read through these, and there's a longer version of as well as well that was in the bulletin last week and the week before, and we'll include it in the coming weeks as we continue in the Psalms. Psalm 14 puts us in that first book about David becoming king of Israel, and one interesting thing to know about Psalm 14 is that it has a twin, almost an identical twin. Psalm 53 is almost word for word exactly like Psalm 14. And one day, God willing, someone will preach Psalm 53 in Covenant Hope Church, and you'll be blessed then too. Like its twin, this psalm uh, is of David. It says in the original title there. It's probably in your Bible. And it says also that it was for the choir master. So these psalms were sung. They were sung by the Israelites at different times, festivals and other times. And when you consider that, it's a little shocking to think of a choir or a group of people opening up their mouths to sing, and not just to sing any psalm, but to sing especially the first three discouraging verses of Psalm 14. I don't know if you thought about that when you looked at it perhaps earlier in the week. These verses are so difficult to stomach because they force us to recognize our sinfulness. Now, if you remember, that's the first point. Recognize your sinfulness. Recognize your sinfulness, verses 1 through 4. And verse 1 begins with that blunt statement, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. This fool, as David calls him, He's evidently an atheist. I once heard R.C. Sproul say in a lecture that in reality, there truly are no atheists. They don't exist, to be honest. Why? Because Romans chapter 1 tells us that it's actually impossible to be an atheist. It says in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Well, it looks like the Apostle Paul has been reading Psalm 14 when he wrote Romans. These verses in Romans tell us that people's sin or unrighteousness ultimately suppresses or covers the truth about God so that even though someone can look at creation, they can step outside and see the sky and the sun and the moon and everything else that God's created, clearly seeing that it's created by God, and they can reject that idea. 
And when someone does that, they aren't being wise, they aren't being smart, they're becoming foolish. A fool, you should know in biblical terms, is not just someone who's silly or doesn't have much intellect. That's not what a fool is defined by the Bible. A fool is someone who is morally corrupt. They're someone who stubbornly rejects wisdom. Not someone who has a sincere conviction, but someone who's irresponsibly defying God. You can imagine a person like that, a a biblically defined fool, as someone who perhaps looks up into the sky, saying with a sneer and a wave of their hand, there is no God. They know it's not true, but they're defiant. They're defiant of him, against him. And so in the second half of verse 1, David comments on this foolish person then. He says, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Now, abominable here means filthy and vile. I mean, it means absolutely terrible. But wait a minute. There is none who does good? Is that really true? How can the psalmist know for sure? Well, David tells us not just what he sees, but what God sees when he looks on humanity. Look at verse 2. He tells us, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. In today's world, cameras are everywhere. I'm willing to bet that every single one of you have a phone that has a camera on it. Maybe if it's an old phone, it's a bad camera. But I bet you have a camera. Every one of you has a laptop computer or maybe even a desktop computer. When you sit at it, you're sitting in front of a camera. Or drones, for instance. Those things that fly in the air, those little things that fly in the air, most of them were basically created to carry cameras everywhere and take pictures from above us. They can go anywhere. A friend of mine not too long ago spoke with a security specialist who was familiar with the UAE's police and security capability and reported to me that this specialist said that he had never, ever seen a country with more cameras trained on the population than the United Arab Emirates. Never seen it before. And he'd been to a lot of countries. But God knows and sees far, far more than what can be captured of you and I on security camera footage. God sees and knows everything about you and I. Everything about us. God knows the numbers of hairs on your head. He knows when you get up and when you lie down. He knew you before you'd enter the world on the day you were born. And even more importantly, God knows what's going on in your heart. He knows it. You know, if you're not a Christian, you're always welcome at Covenant Hope Church. I've had non-Christian friends who, when I invite them to come to one of our services, they ask me if it's okay. They ask if people will be offended if they come, if they're not a Christian. Would they be welcome? 
you bet you'll be welcome. And I hope you feel welcome here in this church, no matter what religious background you come from. I wonder about you. Do you believe what this Bible verse says about God knowing everything about you? You know, uh, there's over 7 billion people who live on the earth today. And God knows each and every single one of them intimately. He sees. He searches. He assesses. He evaluates. Now, what some of you are feeling right now, as I remind you of this truth, is the reason why someone might flee to atheism. I mean, that's intimidating just to think about. It's not a conviction that they have that there's really no God, but the consequences of having to deal with a holy God evaluating their thoughts, their intentions, even their every deed, push them in the direction of rejecting the idea of his existence. They wish that there were no God, at least a God like the God of the Bible. And so they live like there is none hoping against all the evidence that it's true. But it is true. It is true. And the Bible says that from beginning to end, that God searches and he knows everyone. And what does God find? Well, look with me at verse 3. They have all turned aside together They have become corrupt. There is none who does good. Of course, it's repeating what was spoken in verse 1. Not even one. God was looking for those who, by their own decision, would seek him, but none have. They've turned aside, David says. Now, David is driving the point home even more when he says, together they've become corrupt. It's not just a few that sin. It's not half that sin. It's not a majority that sin. It's all that sin. This truth is the equalizer for all humanity. No one does good. Not even one. Remember in our scripture reading earlier in the service when Thelma read to us from Romans chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul makes the case that both Jews and Greeks, and by that he's referring to Jews and Gentiles, that means everybody, everyone, are under sin. I don't know if you recall the, the list the list of phrases that he uses. And what he's doing there is he's quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting, in fact, from Psalm 14, perhaps Psalm 53, its twin, and other places throughout the Old Testament to make the case that the Scriptures testify that it's not just Gentiles who are sinners, it's Jews and Gentiles. And, of course, we read on in Romans chapter 3, that no one would be justified by obeying the law because they can't obey the law. They can't obey the whole law. Brothers and sisters, this, this is a difficult truth, but it is an essential truth to grasp and believe wholeheartedly. You'll be deceived about yourself and about everyone else if you compromise on it. 
Now, this is the bad news in verses 1 through 3 and a little bit of 4 here. This is the bad news that's necessary to understand in order to see how good the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is. So we have to grasp this. This is a part of the gospel that the world, though, doesn't really want to hear. In fact, it's the part especially that they don't want to hear. And our evangelism will be ineffective if we leave it out. It'll be ineffective. Now listen, maybe it's not the first thing that you communicate to your non-Christian friend about the gospel. Maybe you don't turn immediately to Romans chapter 3 and you list that, all those verses from the Old Testament, and you tell them that's you. Maybe you don't start there. Maybe you do. And yes, absolutely, we should tell people that we are sharing the gospel with that they're made in God's image, that they're designed with love and care by the creator God himself. We should do that. But we can never stop telling our friends, indeed the whole world, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, even them. No one can embrace Christ unless they reject their own sin and sinfulness. No one. You can't both hold on to your love of sin and begin to grasp and cling to the love of Christ. Jesus said you can't have two masters. Recognizing sin is a necessary first step to repentance and becoming a Christian. Now you may ask, Brian, aren't we really talking just about secular people here? What about all the religious and devout people that I know, but who are not Christians? They say they love God or gods, and they're very, very religious. Well, first of all, we need to say that unequivocally the Bible teaches that Jesus is God. The scriptures clearly say in Colossians 1 verse 19, for example, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And many, many other verses in the New Testament testify to this. So Jesus is God and he displays God fully to us. So if the religious and devout person claims to know, love, and honor God and yet rejects the kingship and the full and exclusive deity of the man Jesus, then no matter how kind or spiritual they seem, they know, love, and honor something or someone who is not God. They are religious, but spiritually blind and dangerously misguided. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So then from our passage so far, we see that naturally, without God intervening, people are described as corrupt, doing abominable deeds, not doing good, not seeking God, and not having understanding of God. And this describes all people. And as if it weren't enough, there's verse 4. <laughs> David goes on to tell us something more about fallen humanity. Look with me at verse 4. He says, Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread and 
do not call upon the Lord. So in addition to all the other characteristics that we see, that not only do all people rebel against God himself, but they set themselves against God's people. So they're set against God and they're set against God's people. They consume them, he says, just as easily and unthinkingly as they eat bread. I mean, think about it. Think about when you go to a Lebanese restaurant. The waiter can't bring enough Arabic bread for you, can he? And so everyone grabs a hot steaming piece of Arabic bread and in minutes you're picking up the basket and you're waving it at the waiter who's across the room for a refill, right? That's how easily those opposed to God's will will also end up setting themselves against God's people. You know, verses 1 through 4, they're hard to take. You know, I want to be a part of making any place where I live a better place. I want it to be a more just place. I want it to be a place of kindness and a place of peace. I'd like that for Dubai. I'd like that for my home country as well. I bet you could say the same. But the reality is that it's, it's so easy to get discouraged about this, isn't it? And these verses drive it home. There's so much evidence, not only in these verses, but all around us. You know, a biblical response to seeing the depths of sin in ourselves and all around us is to lament. To cry out to God and to mourn the sin and its effects. This psalm, actually, could be considered a lament. And there are lots of other places where God's people grieve over sin in and around them. It's in the Bible. Grieving over sin and its effects in our prayers and even in our songs guards us from simply embracing these truths that are in this, these verses. By, it, it, it prevents us from just embracing them intellectually. It takes into account the fact that God has given us emotions as well. And as much as we're commanded to rejoice and be glad, we're also commanded to lament what's wrong with us and the world. I wonder, have you learned how to pray to God and grieve over sin? Do you tend to just skip over that? Pray for solutions? I encourage you to let the prayers of Scripture be a model for you, the prayers of lament. Don't simply skip quickly to requests for God to work. Yes, yes, you should get to that. But we will pray biblical prayers if we lament sin. If we do that, we're imitating God and how he's described in Scripture, in fact. Well, before we move on to verses 5 and 6 and the second point this morning, we need to consider actually a difficulty that verse 4 presents to us. And what seems like actually a contradiction. Think of it. In the first three verses, we learned that all people are sinful. No one does good. But here in verse 4, we're told of a category of people called by God, my people. And down in verse 5, David calls them the generation of the righteous. And in verse 6, they're the poor and the people for whom God is their refuge. Who are these people? 
what we can see from just looking at our psalm, Psalm 14 alone, is that these people are somehow counted different because of their special relationship with God. They're connected to him. He considers them his own. He's with them, it says in verse 5. Both the fact that everyone is a sinner and there exists a people called the righteous can both be true if becoming righteous was something that happened to formerly sinful people. That's how it's possible. Now, we've already read from Romans where Paul quotes David telling us that all are unrighteous because they've all broken God's law. But Paul goes on to say just a few verses later in chapter 3, verses 21 through 22, these amazing truths. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. God's people are those who didn't have any righteousness of their own, so they repented of their sin and trusted in God's promise to give them his righteousness. Brothers and sisters, this is who we are. We were all fools. We had no interest in seeking God. We were corrupt. And even if we were religious, we were not honoring the true God with our lives. But Christ pursued us in love. He won us over. He captured our hearts. And he declared us righteous based on his limitless goodness. We were unjust, but God justified us through grace. So this is true. A saint is not a perfect person or a person who has produced their own righteousness. A saint is a sinner who has received the righteousness of Jesus Christ as a free gift through faith in him. And so Christians should be humble people. We don't say to the world, hey, look at us. We say, look at Jesus. Look at him. When you speak of your faith, do you speak as one who's a sinner, who's been given the free gift of Christ's righteousness, something you didn't deserve, something you didn't choose even of your own accord? Never, ever forget who you were before Christ and even who you might have become apart from Christ's work. Sometimes I think to myself, you know, if that sin that, God gives me strength to fight against in my life. If the Spirit were not dwelling in me, where would I be? Where would I be? What is the trajectory of my life apart from the grace of God? Think about that sometimes for your life and thank Him that you're not there. Thank Him that you're with Jesus. Well, if verses 1 through 4 describe the bad news, verses 5 through 6 reveal some of the benefits of the good news of the gospel. And that catapults us actually into the second point this morning. Trust God's protection. Trust God's protection. 
Well, after describing the danger that sinners pose to God's people in verse 4, the psalmist recounts how God protects his people and rescues them. Look look at verses 5 and 6 with me. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Now the language here is a little awkward, but it seems that David, the psalmist, is remembering some incident and describing it in vague terms about how God fights for his people against those who would destroy them or shame them. Some Bible commentators actually think that David might be remembering how God fought for the Israelites against the Egyptians when he rescued them from Egypt. That incident happened about 400 years before David's time. As the Israelites were fleeing Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they were caught between the Egyptian army on one side and the Red Sea on the other. How could they escape? Exodus 14, 24 and 25 tell us. And in the morning, watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. There, there, when God threw them into a panic, there the Egyptians were terrorized, as it were, as we read in Psalm 14. For God was with Israel, they realized. And then in verse 6, the psalmist even directs his words to the oppressor. Perhaps he had Pharaoh in his mind saying to him, You, you would shame the plans of the poor and the oppressed, God's people. But the Lord is his refuge. In the Midwestern part of the United States, they are particularly prone to dangerous weather at different times of the year. And tornadoes often form and they sweep through cities and towns and they have the potential to destroy everything. Tornadoes are violent winds that create a funnel or a cone of circulating wind if you're not familiar with them. And the wind speeds in tornadoes can get up to be around 500 kilometers an hour. They can be up to three kilometers in width touching the ground. And they can stay on the ground moving across the landscape for hundreds of kilometers, in fact, at a time. They're terrifying. And now that area of the United States where they're common, it's sometimes labeled Tornado Alley. And if a tornado comes through, it can actually lift a house off of its foundation and just wreck it. It can, it's, tornadoes have been known to um, lift cars up and throw them hundreds of meters. So one thing that's very common for families in this area of the country is to have either on their property or even in their house a specially built tornado shelter. Sometimes it's an underground room that's been dug out in their yard somewhere and it has a door over it. And so if a tornado comes, the family has to flee from the house and go to that door and get into that underground room until the storm passes. Or others, they build their houses with reinforced concrete closets inside of the house, actually. And so they can go into and take shelter in that place 
So even if the house is completely destroyed, that reinforced concrete shelter will protect them. Their home and their possessions might be lost, but their lives would be preserved. God is our shelter in the storms of life. The Christian's great hope for protection is this life in God, this life in Christ. And in the gospel, God has given himself to us more than he has given us anything in particular. Of course, God uses different means to protect us us and keep us. He might provide money through the church community in a time of financial crisis. That's, in fact, what our benevolence fund is for. That's the money that we take up every month after we take the Lord's Supper. But many of you haven't even waited on fellow church members or on a fellow church member to approach the elders to ask for help from the benevolence fund. You've generously given to one another to help a brother or sister in Christ. Praise God for that. That's God's, that's God using the means of the covenant community to protect and provide for his people. But ultimately, it's God that's with us and we find refuge in him. Do you find yourself in the midst of a crisis even right now? Are there wicked people at work or elsewhere that are threatening you in some way? Turn to the Lord. Cry out to him. And don't do that alone. Let us, your covenant community, lift you up in prayer as well. Tell someone or tell more than one person in this church. Let us as elders know so that we can bear your burdens with you. As elders, we meet every other week. And half of those meetings or more are focused primarily on praying for and strategizing for the spiritual good of the congregation. We walk through and pray for about a fourth of the members during those particular elder meetings. Before those meetings, each elder has contacted a member of the church and asked them, or more than one member actually, and asked them how they were doing with the Lord, who they were most connected with in the church. We don't want anyone to stray too far. And we've asked them what challenges they were facing so that we could pray for them as elders. I want to encourage you to let that be a model for you in your relationships with one another. Ask those kinds of questions from each other from time to time so that we can continue to encourage one another and entrust one another to God's protection. And for those of you who aren't Christians, this protection and refuge that God provides for his people, it can be yours as well. God is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's all-loving. And you can trust him for the same protection that the psalmist is celebrating here if you would simply trust him first and foremost for the free gift of righteousness found only in his son, Jesus. You may be asking, what do I need to do? What steps do I need to take? Simply acknowledge to him in prayer that you understand that verses 1 through 3 describe you. And that if he were to come now, if he were to return to earth to judge, 
Rather than to rescue, you would experience great terror like that of verse 5 because of your sin. Ask to receive Christ and his righteousness as your own. Tell him that you have none of your own. He offers his purity and his holiness freely. And then set out to live for him, honoring him as the king of your life. If you're truly repenting and putting your faith in him, he will come and he will live in you by the power of the Holy Spirit and you will be changed and you will begin to change. There's no ritual that's needed, no special person or authority on earth who can give it to you. Claim Christ and cling to Christ and his protection will be yours forever. As David remembers God's trustworthy protection for the believer in his life, he ends his song with something like a prayer in verse 7. And that instructs us to hope in God's salvation. That's our third point this afternoon. Hope in God's salvation. Look one more time at verse 7. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. So David cries out to God that salvation would come for Israel out of Zion. He's longing for ultimate and permanent salvation for God's people. You should know that Zion was originally the name of the southernmost mountaintop near Jerusalem. It eventually came to describe all of Jerusalem when David conquered it and built a city there. It also included eventually the temple. And then throughout the Bible, it has an even larger meaning as well. It describes all of Israel and its people. So that's sometimes what the Bible's referring to when it says Zion. And the metaphor is even further expanded in the New Testament, really, to represent all of God's people Everywhere, throughout all time. That's Zion. Even though David declares God to be the refuge of his people and the one who will protect them against their enemies in verses 5 and 6, David knows that Israel needs and looks forward to a final and ultimate rescue. And he declares that that will be a time of even greater rejoicing and gladness than at any other time in their history. Before Jesus was born, John the Baptist was born. He would precede Jesus in ministry and prepare the people for the greater ministry of Jesus. And at his birth, John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied. And it's recorded in Luke chapter 1, verses 68 through 79. He said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, 
being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Jesus is the Savior that has come out of Zion. And he is the answer to David's prayer in Psalm 14. And he's the answer to our prayer for salvation as well. Our first and greatest enemy is what we read about in verses 1 through 3. Our sin. Our sin has the effect of making us enemies of God. His wrath was being stored up for us for the day of judgment. But Jesus came into the world, and from the very beginning of his life, he had no corruption in himself. He did no abominable deeds. He has wisdom and understanding personified. He always sought God, his Father. He never turned aside from God's direction and command. He always did only good. He was the only perfect, sinless one. And yet he went to the cross. And he suffered the great terror that God's enemies deserve to suffer. He did that for God's glory and for us, for our sake to ransom us from slavery to sin and death and to set in motion our adoption into God's family. David looked forward to Jesus' day and we look back on what he did for us. He is our salvation. He is your salvation from your own wickedness and the wickedness of the world in which we live. We trust in him. But like David, we look forward in time as well. We trust in him now, but we hope in his sure return. Oh, he will come back. He promised. He will come back to judge everyone and complete the salvation that he's guaranteed with his life, his death, and his resurrection. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, speaking about God as the face that we will all see when Jesus returns. In the end, the face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us, either giving glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. For you, saints, he will give glory, glory beyond your wildest dreams. And this is what we put our hope in. He is who we trust with our eternity. Don't hope in money or power or the pleasures of this life. Don't put your ultimate trust in a job or a spouse or your family. Let those good gifts of God play their role as blessings in your life, but let Christ your Savior be the hope that towers over all these ways that God provides for us in the here and now. The Lord Jesus Christ is our salvation. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Please pray with me.